Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Abel's Abstracts, the podcast where we abstract away the complexity of building products for the future of the internet and finance. As always, my name is Abel Tedros, and I'll be your host today as we dive into today's episode. So, I am incredibly excited to invite a guest, and this guest is Roham. Roham is someone who I've looked up to for a while in the space. He's been in the space building multiple different products. And so, Roham, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, yeah, excited to chat to you today. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Fantastic. Awesome. So, as always, we'll kick this one off with the introduction, you know, talk a bit about your background and some of the cool stuff you've done in the past. You could go as far as you want. You can maybe go before the crypto days or maybe just talk about the crypto day stuff because I know you've done a lot of stuff pre-crypto and also done a lot of stuff in crypto. So take it how you want, but just give us a bit of background on yourself. That'd be great. I've had a passion for crypto since 2013, 2014, but, you know, the first time we tried building apps on top of it was 2014. But really the history of the company that I started, Axiom Zen, started in 2012, bootstrapped it for six years before creating CryptoKitties. The goal was really to be a venture studio and bring a great group of people together and see what we can do with, with emerging technology. So the first few products we built were actually developer platforms that, that quickly became profitable and funded the rest of our uh, experimentation. So some products you might be familiar with are Routific, which was a company we spun out in 2015. That's kind of route optimization for fleets as a service, as an API. The biggest one before CryptoKitties was Zenhub, uh, which is a developer collaboration platform, probably largest plugin that sits on top of GitHub, used by lots of open source teams, as well as bigger companies like Microsoft, Cisco, Apple, etc. But with crypto, we first tried building apps on top of Bitcoin back in 2014. Obviously, quickly uh, realized that that's got its own bucket of issues, but we're big believers in Bitcoin as a, as a store of value. And in 2017, we started working on the ideas that then led to the non-fungible token standard, ERC-721, on Ethereum, and eventually CryptoKitties, which I'm happy to get into. Fantastic. I'm interested to hear about your journey of trying to build on top of Bitcoin, because I know that a lot of people have tried that. There's some teams that have done some considerably good work, but also I know of other teams that have found it quite challenging. So I'm quite curious to hear about your thoughts and how that experience was. We went into a redux of it with CryptoKitties and and Dapper, but it's simply trying to build on a platform that wasn't made for the thing you're trying to do with it. With Bitcoin, it really didn't go past the hackathon stage, but we were trying to do things like, I challenge you to a game, we bet some Bitcoin and the winner takes all. But it wasn't crypto games like dice rolls and whatnot. The goal was really to have mobile games where people can interact with each other on crypto rails. So, you know, here we are sort of six years later, actually capitalizing on that. But Bitcoin as a platform is really meant to be supremely trustworthy, really hard to change and designed more for censorship resistance and long-term store of value than low latency consumer products or the kinds of interactions you would really want to engage in if it's an active product. Some of that is obvious, but you know this was 2013, 2014. So we were just really enamored by this idea of internet money and as developers that we can build products that have payment rails where we're not taking any platform risk and nor are our customers. And no matter where they are in the world, they can actually engage with each other peer-to-peer uh, and we can just write one set of software, no payment gateways, no 
having to go around getting authorized uh, banks to to sign up and authorize our payments, et cetera. And that idea was very uh, exciting to us. It's something that's you know today becoming possible with high throughput networks, but back then you know the even the core concept was so new. Very brave for venturing out so early because I can only imagine what those days are like relative to what it is right now. And I completely agree with your sentiment around what it's like and the ultimate purpose of Bitcoin and how it's kind of designed for one specific purpose. And you know anything outside of that is not within its core competency. And and kind of Ethereum is trying to extend that, but then also there's kind of issues with the way that Ethereum is trying to approach it with its sharding approach. And I'm sure we'll get into that later on in, in the podcast. But nonetheless, very very exciting background. And thank you so much for giving us an idea of some of the cool stuff you've done in the past. So I want to start this conversation off with CryptoKitties, right? It's the application that everybody loves to talk about because it was really, really popular. You know, it was kind of at some point, I think the most popular DAP for, and it held the title for a very long time. So I guess just a quick refresher. I'm sure I'm sure everyone listening to this knows what CryptoKitties is, but just a quick refresher. What is CryptoKitties and why did you guys decide to build CryptoKitties? CryptoKitties... It's this awesome game designed to teach people about crypto and sort of the value of decentralization. Everything CryptoKitties starts with the 50,000 Generation Zero cats. And the idea was just like the 21 million Bitcoin, there can never be more than 50,000 Generation Zero cats. But unlike Bitcoin, these cats have functionality. They can breed with each other to create new and different looking kitties, different genetics with their own scarcity mechanics. Some of them are limited time, some of them are limited number after they've been bred. There's no more of that phenotype can be created. And because they're on the blockchain, anyone can build apps for them. So whether it's wallets where you can visualize your cats, whether it's marketplaces where you can trade your kitties, whether it's virtual worlds to show them off in, whether it's games like kitty races, add-on items like kitty hats, it's really something that hasn't been possible before blockchain because you know typically you download an app, you buy digital assets in that app, and they sort of just stay there. Whereas with CryptoKitties, we wanted to flip that on its head and say, you buy the digital asset, you form a relationship with the collectible itself, with, with the digital asset, with the character, and different developers can build different apps for that character, for those items that you can actually take them into and sort of adds, adds functionality over time rather than deprecates functionality over time. That was kind of the core driver. And you know, a lot of ways we were a little frustrated with seeing you know, Ethereum such a, it's a general purpose decentralized computer. You can literally do anything with it. And the main thing people were doing was, and to a certain extent still is, speculating on cryptocurrencies. And so we said, well, why not use crypto technology to actually create a different kind of asset? You know, that's where the non-fungible token came from, you know, the, a, a token standard that can represent things that are different from each other rather than all identical the way the way a currency is. And that's where CryptoKitties came from. So you're, so you you hit the nail on the head. We've been one of the most popular dApps since our creation, and still to this day, it's uh, over six thousand monthly active users, over six million total on-chain transactions at the layer one. So that's probably number three, number four smart contract of all time, sort of of, of any kind. And it's really the only smart contracts more than CryptoKitties are Tether or or a few decentralized exchanges like. IDEX or, or Fork Delta. So it's a big piece of the crypto economy and the much bigger piece of the NFT and crypto games sub-economy. For a while, we were in the press all the time. And honestly, it was very 
it was kind of a poor user experience because Ethereum would simply sort of stop working at a, at a certain scale. Gas fees still are through the roof. Our churn rates became nearly 100% every time the network kind of got to a certain level of congestion. And so the big focus over the last year, year and a half has been, let's stay at that sort of 6,000 MAU level and actually learn from our community rather than trying to get these boom and bust cycles. Let's sort of be stable and try to figure out what are the principles of blockchain gaming? How do people want to engage with these assets? And how do we take the learnings we have here and sort of 100x them, 100,000x them in terms of scale with flow? I completely agree because we're still very much in the early stages. And I, I remember those times when CryptoKitties was in the paper, like you say, and Ethereum was on its knees. You guys brought the network to its knees. You know, it was so popular, the the application that you guys built on top of it, that I vividly remember it. It was like crazy times. That's obviously influenced a lot of the decisions you guys have made up until now, you know, the invention of what you guys have built, which is Dapper, which we'll get into later on, and then Flow, which I think is another interesting development that you guys have worked on. Um, But just very quickly, before we go into those two other developments, let's kind of go one level higher. So Dapper Labs is kind of the the company, right? And Dapper Labs is the company that spins out CryptoKitties, NBA Topshot, Dapper, and Flow. Is that the general flow of things? Am I correct in assuming that? That's right. So Dapper Labs, we created uh, in early 2018 after you know we had seen the success, the initial success of CryptoKitties, the demand from consumers. And at that time, we were also getting approached by the biggest brands in the world. Uh, eventually, we decided to work with folks that, that you know, like the NBA, the UFC, a few others that we haven't announced. But we, we were kind of trying to reconcile the demand from consumers, the demand from big brands and people with large communities, whether it's uh, also individual artists, athletes, etc., even nonprofits, and then the scalability of the network in the middle. And so that's when we decided to spin CryptoKitties out of Axiom Zen. I left Axiom Zen along with most of my executive team. We took about 40, 50 people from my previous company to create Dapper Labs as a sort of full stack platform and application company that says, well, Let's start with the user. We know what kind of experiences we want to build, and let's go as far back into the technology as we need to. The goal at that time wasn't, hey, we're going to build our own blockchain, we'll have our crypto token. In fact, we were trying really hard to stay focused on the application layer and leave the infrastructure problems to other folks. But having built infrastructure for the six years before that, we also had a clear idea of what we wanted the platform to look like and sort of the kinds of developer ecosystems that we thought were sustainable versus the ones that we thought were just petri dishes or experimental and sort of dead ends in in a way. That's sort of the arc that led to, hey, we need to build our own blockchain and we need to create flow. We didn't start Dapper Labs with the requirement of having our own uh, layer one, layer one token. And in fact, the goal in the beginning was, let's you know talk to Vitalik, let's talk to Dan Larimer, let's talk to all these folks that are building next-gen networks or improving the current networks and try to understand, can we trust them to deliver on a you know solid foundation for where we're going to build our own applications on top of? 
that's the thing that I love about the approach that you guys have taken, right? It's always about what's the end experience? How can we create the best application and the best kind of experience for our end users, whatever the application is, and try to use the existing infrastructure. But like you say, the existing infrastructure just couldn't meet your demands. And, you know, you guys having already an experience in building cool infrastructure in outside of the space and in the space, um, it makes sense why you guys have decided to go down the route of, of actually building a layer one I love how the story, and obviously we'll get into this, is that, you know, you obviously started off with Dapper Labs, CryptoKitties, built CryptoKitties, had a tremendous success with CryptoKitties, um, and it's still a massive success to this day. But then I know that while using CryptoKitties, you know, you have to have a, a wallet, right? You have to have a place where you store these crypto assets, right? These these kitties. And the wallets that exist today, I mean, it's improving at a really rapid pace. They still need a lot of work, right? And so I'm curious to learn, you know, Dapper is what I'm referring to here, which is the wallet you guys have created. Why did you guys make it? And what are some of the unique challenges you had with CryptoKitties that has led you to create the wallet? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and for those that don't know, Dapper is, I believe it was the first consumer smart contract wallet. So at the time, MetaMask was sort of one type of wallet, non-custodial, you manage your own keys. If you lose your you know seed phrase, it's uh, everything's gone and, and you have zero recourse. That was the way most people were interacting with CryptoKitties. And during our boom, we drove over a million downloads for MetaMask. I, mean, I don't know if all of them sort of came from, from our website, but the funnel was very poor, as in you know, 4 million people on our website. We saw MetaMask's users tick up to a million from, from a very low amount before CryptoKitties. But only 100,000 people actually ended up being able to buy cats because once you end up with a wallet, you need to buy Ether. Then where you get Ether, you need to go to a cryptocurrency exchange, do KYC, wait two weeks. It was very tough. So that was kind of one approach, non-custodial. You hold your own keys. You have to figure out how to get crypto for yourself. And you can't really do anything until you get crypto because you have to pay gas fees, right? We can't even, there was no possibility for a free-to-play onboarding or, or really anything. Whereas the other option was fully what we call fully custodial, which means kind of like Coinbase or Binance or another cryptocurrency exchange, you don't have your own keys. In fact, everything is managed by a central server. And so in that sense, you know, you can you can take your stuff out of the central server, but um, you don't actually have control of your stuff once it's in the server. And, you know, that has huge benefits because it has much better uh, user experience to get in. But it's also complexities around KYC, like I said, taking a long time to actually get in, get out, uh, so on and so forth. So Dapper on Ethereum was this approach of, can we have our cake and eat it too? Can we use smart contracts to hold the, the user's keys um, or, or rather to hold the user's assets and have multiple keys where the user does have a master key into their stuff, but we also hold a recovery key. Well, the user actually holds multiple keys and if they lose one of them, um, they can still come to us and we can help them recover their account without us being ever having access to their items. And that lets us do a bunch of different things. It lets us do free-to-play because we can pay for our users' transactions. It lets us uh, do, like I said, account recovery and actually let people gain access to the things, to the accounts, you know, if they lose their password or, or, or whatnot. And then it unlocks uh, future things like atomic swaps and different ways users can engage with each other, uh, multiple platforms, sort of mobile, desktop, console, whatever it is, each having their own key into the assets so that they're not... So you're not sharing keys across platforms, which is highly insecure. That's how you get MetaMask on your phone or put it, 
share between your Coinbase wallet and your MetaMask today. And so it was really trying to solve an infrastructure problem there. But the, of course, we wanted to make the user experience better. We wanted to make the onboarding and payments and, you know, make it easy to have credit card, you know, purchase crypto with credit cards, et cetera. But the key storage was sort of the big technical lift and the foundational piece that we felt was missing from Ethereum. So today, Dapper is, uh, I believe, the most popular smart contract wallet. There's a bunch of others that are that are doing good work. And, you know, some of them are focused on DeFi. Some of them are uh, more sort of regionally focused. But what we kind of realized towards the the early days, actually, of releasing Dapper is you, you kind of need this functionality to be at the protocol layer. You need it to be at the layer one. And you need every account to have programmable accounts is what we call them on flow, where it's not a smart contract that is actually unchangeable. It's your actual wallet that has uh, smart contract uh, capabilities. And so it's very easy for a developer to build the kinds of things we had to build a whole wallet for. They can just build into their applications. Um, you know, a user can start off with a custodial wallet where the developer is funding their gas and actually maybe putting in money to for so the user can start playing around with the application. And then the user can then choose to take back custody over their account. They can be semi-custodial with the, the developer having recovery keys. The user can do things like social recovery where they give their friends or their parents, you know, a dead man switch. So, hey, if I don't touch my account in a year, you get all my stuff just in case something bad happens. Um, all that stuff becomes almost trivial to program in user accounts. And for developers on Flow, they will know that every user account has those capabilities. And so it just makes it so much easier from a app developer trying to build a good user experience to sort of reason through what tools they have in their toolbox. And by that, I mean, if you're on Ethereum, you don't know whether your user is showing up with a non-custodial wallet, with a smart contract wallet, with a custodial wallet, you don't know what kind of capabilities they have. And so you sort of have to cater to the lowest common denominator that just makes it hard to build a good user experience. That's a wonderful segue into Flow because I, I completely see how while building Dapper, you guys had to kind of do a lot of things that were needed because there wasn't that layer one where you could kind of build all of the cool stuff that you wanted to build without having to build a separate wallet, right? And so let's talk about Flow, which is a very exciting project that I am ecstatic to talk about because I think it's really, really cool the way you guys are approaching it. So let's start from the tippy tippy top and then go layer by layer into Flow. So first and foremost, what is Flow and uh, why are you guys building it? Flow is the next generation blockchain. We built for our own purposes. So we built it for CryptoKitties to be able to scale to the mainstream. We built it for products like NBA Top Shot, it, which is a officially licensed experience we're building with the NBA and the Players Association. And it's essentially the culmination of all our learnings from CryptoKitties, from Dapper, from projects we never launch on Ethereum. And the biggest guiding light for us has been just make life easier for the app developer. Whenever you make it easier for developers to build cool products, we've seen in history, it leads to a, to a flowering of new, new possibilities. So that's what we've been focused on. You know, it, it started with rejecting sharding. You know, I, I mentioned in the early days of CryptoKitties, we... We sat down with Vitalik, we sat down with, you know, Dan Larimer, we sat down with a lot of the builders of next generation blockchains, uh, Silvio from Algorand, et cetera. And all of them are incredibly smart folks, but none of them were thinking about the challenges that we as app developers would face uh, building on top of their platforms. 
uh, building smart contract applications on top of their platforms. And in particular, you know, with, with Ethereum and so many other layer one blockchains, um, they're pursuing this path called sharding, which means today every single uh, node in the network processes every single transaction, every single mining node. And that's kind of inefficient. So what sharding is, is breaking the network up into many, many smaller networks, whether, you know, 64 or uh, 1024 or whatever it is. And within those networks, it works the same. Every node processes every transaction. And between those networks, you have to do sort of asynchronous cross-chart communication to come to consensus on sort of the global the global state. What this means is it's actually really hard for applications, wallets, individuals on different shards to be able to talk to each other. Uh, well, it makes it impossible to talk to each other synchronously. So you always have to talk to each other asynchronously, as in send text messages mm-hmm. rather than have a conversation or send voicemails rather than have a conversation. And that introduces huge difficulties for us, the people building on top, because it means now we have to pay attention to locking, unlocking escrows and unwinding contracts, if unwinding transactions, if the seventh one out of a chain of 13 fails or whatever it is, it becomes really, really difficult to sort of reason in that, in that environment. Um, and so that's why we started building Flow. And, and you know, the, the core idea with Flow is we can't reject decentralization. It has to be at the core of any uh, layer one blockchain platform. We really want to allow wide open participation. Anyone with a home computer should be able to participate on Flow participate in consensus, verify transactions, uh, whatever it is. Um, but at the same time, for the app developer, we got to give them a cohesive atomic uh, environment where they don't have to worry about any of these asynchronous aspects. They can just build software that anybody else can build on, on top of. So there's obviously a lot of other small changes in Flow, and we've sort of walked through a few of them as I was talking about CryptoKitties and Dapper. but the core sort of architectural difference is this idea that we have a large group of computers that are participating, but we can still get massive performance out of a small group of computers that are, you know, in some cases being hosted by some of the world's most trusted companies or, or even uh, academic institutions, et cetera. And all of their work is being checked by the public in parallel, in the open, in a fully verifiable way. You're kind of touching there about the multi-role architecture, right? And how you guys have uh, decided to set this up, I'm assuming? That's right, exactly. So each node can specialize in a particular part of the transaction processing based on its uh, hardware capabilities and based on the the staking, sort of how much money that the node operator is willing to stake as a security deposit. Right, right. Yeah, so that's a good kind of description of what it is, how it works. How I imagine this is that when you make certain technical decisions, you have to balance that with other technical decisions. And sometimes you tend to have trade-offs, right? So what are the particular trade-offs that you're making um, by designing your architecture in this way, if any? I mean, the biggest trade-off is at the protocol layer itself, is our system is more complex than a sharded system or a highly optimized but less decentralized system like Hashgraph or, or Libra or, or Solana, et cetera. So we've kind of taken the complexity of how do you scale this thing and said, well, we got to deal with it at the protocol layer rather than forcing it up the stack into the application layer. And so it took us a longer time to make sure that our ideas are correct. 
the initial architecture, sort of the idea for this, we had in May of 2018. That was the first time we put it to paper and started running it by our advisors. Um, and it took us two years to, to bring the, the testnet and now the beta mainnet to market. And it was two years of lots of building, lots of experimentation, lots of consultation with uh, advisors, folks like Dan Bonet from, from Stanford, and obviously the, the investors we have on board. And, you know, we kind of took the burden on because someone has to figure out the, the challenge, right? Like there's no, there's no free lunch. The complexity has to end up somewhere in the stack. And the further up the stack we push it, the more people have to deal with it. And so the approach of, let's say, Ethereum 2.0, well, which is kind of the base layer, is it's actually pretty, pretty simple, but it's highly sharded. And so you, you have to figure out how to stitch the different pieces together. That's the trade-off that we made. We decided on a more difficult architecture and something that needs more testing, more effort, but in return makes life easier for the people uh, building, building on top. Exactly. And that's what I love, right? You guys have taken a stance where it's like, we want to not push all the complexity to the developer, right? We want to make the developer experience a breeze so that we can encourage more application developers to create awesome new applications, right? And instead of taking the approach where you're leaving it up to the developer, and you're right, you know, there's no free lunch. Somebody's got to deal with that complexity at some point. It's just where in that scale is that complexity dealt with, right? And you guys have obviously taken the stance of, hey, Let's make it as easy as possible for application developers to build applications that take away that complexity, right? And I and I really, really like that. And what another way of you guys are trying to do that is most layer ones are focused on, you know, Ethereum is, is focused on Solidity and EVM and stuff like that. And then there's other protocols out there that are um, using Wasm, WebAssembly, right? And trying to kind of adhere to those, those things. But each programming language has its own uh, ups and downs. I'll speak specifically to Solidity and the EVM, right? Oh gosh, <laughs> I've tried to write smart contracts and I could tell you they are freaking hard. Like it is hard to write good, good quality contracts that hold a lot of money and you're always constantly nervous by the amount of money that gets put into your contracts, right? And if there's potentially some sort of way it can be exploited, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's incredibly hard to build really, really good contracts uh, using Solidity, right? But then you go to the other side, which is uh, Wasm and WebAssembly, right? And that's great. Wasm, some believe, and I think as well, is the future, right? But it's for fast-moving web technologies, right? But it's not kind of catered for the kind of guarantees that you need when you're building robust things like smart contracts, right? So Flow has taken a completely different approach, right, with Cadence, which is the resource-oriented programming language that you guys have come out with. So I'd love for you to tell us a bit more about that and uh, your approach and, and your thinking around this. This is another thing that we were, we didn't start off saying we want to build our own programming language. In fact, I think we, we fought it quite hard. But the reality is, like, like you said, Solidity is really hard to work with. And for the history of programming, it's been a feature, not a bug, that you can create digital assets really easily. You can copy them infinitely. You can destroy them willy-nilly. Like that, in large part, has been a new feature that the internet introduced and well that software introduced and the internet sort of supercharged and for all of its history of that's been what you want in software programming blockchains are the first time that you can have digital assets that in the real world they cannot be destroyed they are scarce and so they shouldn't be easy to create and where access control matters a lot as in you know if you have a jpeg on the internet nobody can own that jpeg there's been no need to develop 
software uh, or programming language primitives to talk about ownership of a digital asset. It just simply hasn't been possible before. Whereas digital assets on the blockchain, you know, starting with Bitcoin, but kind of being taken to exponentially greater levels with, with uh, Ethereum and, and smart contract blockchains, is the first time that you can create digital assets that have rules around their creation, right? They can never be more than 50,000 Gen Zero cats. They can never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. And the, their pace of creation is predefined and that can't be changed. Um, at the same time, these digital assets can't be copied. I can't copy a Bitcoin. The blockchain won't let me. And I can't destroy it. I can send it to sort of an address that, that where it's inaccessible. But that should be something that's difficult to do rather than, rather than easy to do. And so uh, we were kind of thinking about these concepts and looking at linear types which share some characteristics with blockchain digital assets in the sense that they're closer than the data structures that we use in sort of normal course of programming to, to refer to this information. So we were looking at linear types. We were thinking through, hey, how would we build a programming language around them? And there's a fair amount of academic research applying uh, linear types to, to blockchain assets. But uh, when we saw Libra come out, Libra, the, the Facebook team's uh, blockchain project, they were the first ones to sort of take the concept of linear types and kind of extend it a little bit further, develop this idea of what's known as resources and have all of the cool things, or let's say all of the new things about blockchain digital assets represented in a programming language. So you can actually have the rules around the creation, access, and destruction of these digital assets be part of the programming language itself, be part of the program itself, and be enforced at the runtime level. Um, and that's incredibly powerful. That's incredibly, it's the right constraints on the developer because now you can't write code that deletes a Bitcoin or copies a CryptoKitty. And those are the kinds of bugs that cause catastrophic issues because something can happen in the programming language that is sort of conflicting with, with reality on the blockchain. That's sort of where, where Cadence came from. We saw the team, the work that the Move team was doing. Move is a, is a great virtual machine. It's a very performant programming language, but it's very hard to read. It's, it's hard to write. It's somewhat lower level than you would want it to be. And so Cadence, we sort of started at the exact opposite end. Uh, Dieter calls it peanut butter and jelly in the sense that Cadence is easy to read, easy to write. It looks like Swift or, or Rust, but it's based on all of the same concepts as Move. And you know the Move team has been awesome. So we're, we're collaborating with them to make sure Cadence can compile down to Move. And so both of the ecosystems and programming languages will be will be cross compatible with each other. But so so that's some of the reasoning behind Cadence, and also a little bit on where we're taking it from here. Because this this paradigm is pretty new. Cadence and Move are the only programming language in existence that that are what we call resource oriented programming languages. But from what we're seeing with our own community over 1,600 projects created on the playground. People can go play around with resource-oriented programming themselves. And now, you know, we have all of the tools, uh, dev tools on GitHub, et cetera, open. So we have, uh, from what we can tell, thousands of projects being built on top of the open source tools we've released over the past month or two. I love that. I think the approach is an interesting one. And I, I think, like you say there, there's a lot to be said about creating a language that 
almost by default doesn't allow you to uh, make the big mistakes that you would usually make in terms of, like you say, like deleting a Bitcoin, right? I think that's a really important choice to make and, and I think would make for a much easier life for the developer creating these contracts, right? So I want to dive into some of the unique aspects of Flow and how like why it's interesting, right? You know, some of them being, you know, programmable accounts, upgradable contracts, and how you guys are approaching that. Built-in logging support, you know, payment on ramps, free-to-play onboarding, uh, what you guys call human-readable security, right? And so I'd love to touch on those things there, but then keep in top of mind that everyone who's listening to this is kind of a product person, tech person, um, and wants to kind of build on some cool technology, right? And, you know, I want I want this to be an opportunity where um, you can really communicate the why this is interesting and why Flow is a, is a really cool place to be building some applications on. I can go into each of the individual things, but the highest level way I would think about it is is from, unfortunately, building on blockchain has meant until now, you need to adapt to a whole new set of realities, you need to forget about your expectations of what a developer platform should should be like. And then you have to learn a whole bunch of new expectations on sort of how to build blockchain applications. And on Flow, we've tried to, the emotion or the feeling we want to create among developers that, that are trying to build products on top is that, wow, these guys have thought of everything. And in a sense, we want developers to not worry about any of the complex, not, not necessarily the complexities, because we do want them to think about what's new in blockchain, but we don't want them to worry about bending out of shape in order in order to build a blockchain app. We want them to focus on the use case that they want to create and have the protocol just get out of the way and enable that. And so by that, I mean, I don't want people to learn about programmable accounts. They don't, new developers don't need to know what that is because they don't need to know that the alternative was worse. You know what I mean? They don't, it just should be that way. There, there shouldn't be the concept of non-programmable accounts. It's a smart contract blockchain, right? And so we tried to kind of rethink things from first principles and say, well, I mean, the way Flow does logging is just the way an application platform should do logging. It's what, it's how as an application developer, you need to be able to debug, okay, what's failing, et cetera. And uh, that's just logical. For upgradable contracts, it's just that, Non-upgradable contracts don't make any sense because they assume that software, you get it right the first time. And so what's ended up happening on Ethereum is you say smart contracts are immutable, but almost every popular smart contract has a backdoor or an admin key or a pause button or, or something on it, right? That lets the developer step in in cases of catastrophic failure and make things right. So we've said, well, that's just obvious. And so let's build it into the protocol at a in a sort of transparent and visible way, rather than forcing people to to find workarounds. And it's always this concept of workarounds. And so with upgradable contracts on Flow, it's a protocol level standard. You can use it, you don't have to use it. And, And what it does is you can tell users of your smart contract which parts of your smart contract are upgradable and for how long. So you can say, here's the new contract, it's in beta. So for the first three months, everything is upgradable. I can change anything. For the six months after that, these three sort of more sensitive parts are upgradable. And after that, it becomes immutable for all time. And that schedule can be immutable. As in, once you've sort of deployed it, everybody can transparently see, okay, it's in beta. Okay, now it's in a soft launch period. Oh, and okay, now it's fully locked in. And people can take their own individual decisions on how much risk they want to take. More than that, you know, we talk about smart contracts as 
Legos, right? Money, money, Legos, uh, whatever you want to call it. And so the idea that smart contracts can build on top of each other. Well, if smart contracts are building on top of each other, then they got to have some way of understanding the risks and dependencies that they're creating uh, by calling each other. And they need to have some way of communicating that risk or those dependencies back up to the wallet software, or we call it the user agent, the, the, the sort of piece of software that's acting on behalf of, of the user. And so we put a lot of emphasis on things that are human readable. So if it's an upgradable contract, it should try and be sort of human readable, or at least readable to the user agent in a way that they can then parse for the user, as in what risk are you taking by using this one smart contract that relies on these two other contracts that are themselves upgradable. So there they can be changed. Um, and so your, your funds could be, could be at a risk or, or whatever it is. And that's the same thing with human readable security where, you know, on Ethereum, uh, it's actually very hard for a wallet software to know what permissions the DAP is asking for. So the DAP says, Hey, sign this transaction for me. Um, and the wallet, pops it up to the user, hey, sign this transaction for the DAP, but it's not human readable. What am I actually uh, giving permissions for the DAP to do? Is it to send $20 or is it to send $200 a week from now without telling me? And you, you kind of don't know. And so little, I mean, it's, it's not so little, that's actually pretty big, but sort of holes in the user experience like this lead to the potential for pretty catastrophic liability down the line from our standpoint, like that's fine for, you know, experiments and, and whatnot. But if that happens to a group of NBA fans, we're going to have a lot of explaining to do. And it erodes trust in the technology. Um, you know, ironically, the technology that's supposed to be trustless. So that's kind of where, where we're coming from with all of these little, little and not so little features is it's less about the features. And it's more that we just think that this is going to be like drinking water as in, you know, you shouldn't, you should never be without any of these capabilities. And uh, I think most of them will be taken for granted a year from now. The first thing you said there around upgradable contracts, that's been a torn discussion debate within the Ethereum community, right? Where you have folks who think it, or at least it was kind of thought to be this kind of binary thing where you have upgradable contracts or you don't have upgradable contracts right but like you mentioned uh, most of these contracts have admin keys and, and you know checks and balances in place in case things don't uh, go wrong right and that for me like you say makes a ton of sense and you guys have said okay let's take that and, and bake that into the base right that should everyone should have access to that um, and that should be common knowledge what i like about that approach is that you have a time you can have a timetable like you say where you kind of say okay over this time period this is what's going to change and this is what's going to be immutable and that's kind of that stays as is you can configure the relationship in any way you can and then another point you made there about human readable security that's a huge problem right like Argent has been quite vocal on this around dApps and how you have to approve uh, certain transactions and how you know that could be quite sketchy and how you can approve an incredible like you can you can you can sign the transaction saying you want to do x and then it Two weeks later, you know, something else happens, right? It's, it's very complicated. So all of these really small things that make building on Ethereum kind of a bit of a pain in the ass at the moment, you guys have thought about, okay, wow, let's actually bake this into the layer, into the bottom and just have this be common knowledge and, and have developers be able to use this stuff that, yeah, quite, quite honestly makes a ton of sense. Thank you. I mean, the most exciting thing is, is that, we're, you know, people are trying it out. People are playing with it now. 
and they are giving us that feedback because for a while, I mean, we always were trying to put this in front of partners. You know, we've been uh, we've been partnered with the Ubisoft folks for for quite some time. Animoca has been a great partner for for quite some time, and so you know, we have been working with other developers with blockchain expertise for for a while. But you know, now that we have a few thousand people going through this stuff, and no one is saying this is crazy, so it's been it's been pretty <laughs> awesome to sort of see that that we're getting people are having that response when they see all of the little things that we've uh, we've we've thought up from the ground up or we've rethought from the ground up so it's exciting to hear you say that as well of course yeah it comes back to what you said earlier on right you want to have that feeling as a developer when you use flow that ah wait these guys have thought about everything and <laughs> it's actually quite easy to build on top of them and that for me is exciting because then if we truly like i'm a massive believer and i'm sure everyone listening to this podcast is of you know the future that we're trying to build with blockchain technology right but we all must realize that if we want this amazing technology to proliferate in society, we need strong application developers to come and build really cool stuff. But that can't happen unless you have the infrastructure layer innovation. And for me, Flow is definitely one of those things, right? And so I'm incredibly excited about the future. I think it's going to be very fun. And for the folks listening to the podcast who kind of are equally as excited and perhaps want to get involved, where would you suggest them to go? Where would you suggest them to check out and learn more about Flow? Uh, the Flow website is onflow.org, onflow as in O-N-F-L-O-W. My direct email is r at dapperlabs.com, um, so people can feel free to reach out to me. The best place is really to join our Discord, so chat.onflow.org, and then sort of engage with the rest of the community. And if you actually want to try your hand at, at writing a smart contract and cadence, there are a whole bunch of tutorials on uh, play.onflow.org. That's where I would say, you know, a new developer or a developer that's uh, new to smart contracts should start. And if you've written a Solidity smart contract, you should go there too, just to see how much easier it is to read and write uh, Cadence code. I know what I'm going to do this evening. I am very excited to play around with the playground, uh, check out the GitHub Discord. And of course, as always, what we'll do is for everyone listening to the podcast, we'll put all the links that we mentioned in the podcast description and also in the newsletter as well. Look, Roham, I would love to spend even more time with you here discussing all the cool stuff you've done with Flow, uh, Dapper, CryptoKitties uh, and the whole Dapper Labs project in itself but unfortunately we have limited time and this has been uh the podcast i want to say a big big thank you to you my friend for coming along and just breaking down and explaining all the different complexities around what the space is like and what you guys are building with dapper flow crypto kitties and things like this and uh, yeah thank you so much for coming along my friend thank you very much for having me and yeah looking forward to to being back and sharing some news about our mba launch that's coming up soon as well Yes, yes. I'm very excited about that. I, just to let everyone know, um, as we're recording this podcast, NBA Top Shot is kind of having a, a sequence of drops of different products, which is uh, incredibly exciting. So yeah, I'm excited to see how that plays out too. Awesome.